0: We're studying this particular Lenten season, the amazing story of God's work in the life of Lazarus and his family and the implications that the pattern God sets there has for how he works in your life and in my life. And so if you have your Bibles available to you, you might enjoy opening up to John chapter 11 as we once again plunge into this multi-level story that provides us a lens into the power and the providence of God. When we left the story last week, uh, we were in the company of three remarkable siblings. There's a a very, very popular television program going on right now called This Is Us, which is the story of these three amazing siblings closely bound uh, together. And in a sense, this story in the Bible uh, has some echoes of some of the themes you meet in that popular television story. But in this particular moment in the story, it's a very, very difficult time. Uh, Mary and Martha, the two sisters in the family, have sent word to Jesus that their brother Lazarus, who is a friend of Jesus's, is very, very sick. And because they enjoy a very intimate relationship with Christ, Uh, they are confident that Jesus will show up shortly. He'll use his amazing healing powers and and bring Lazarus back to full health again and all will be well and so they, they they wait patiently at the start for Jesus to arrive and they're sure that will be just about any minute. But Jesus does not arrive just any minute and then the hours begin to wear on and the hours actually become days And and their patience turns to anxiety and their worries turn to absolute despair as they watch their brother Lazarus getting worse by the minute. Some of you have been there. You've been at the bedside of someone deathly ill. You've seen them struggle as they often do in those circumstances. And you know the anguish that fills your heart, the sense of helplessness that you feel, the desperate wish that somebody will come in and make a difference in the situation. And you can imagine that Mary and Martha are sitting there and in the outer room there are friends and neighbors who have stopped by trying to offer some kind of comfort and help. And they're there with Lazarus as as he loses his ability to speak. And, and goes unconscious and his breathing is labored and he's struggling and then it gradually over time, it moves into another stage and Lazarus's breathing actually begins to slow and it gets slower and slower still until with one last long rattling exhale, the last bit of life goes out of him, like vapor into the air, and disappears and in that moment those two sisters know that this big three arrangement they've enjoyed this wonderful interconnectedness will never be the same there will be no more more evenings laughing and joking around the fire together there will be no more uh, opportunities to rib him. There will be no more chances to experience his amazing uh, way of encouragement and love. There will be no more of those family dinner times when they share the events of the day. There'll be no more memories to be made in the future or life to be shared. Lazarus is gone. He's dead. And we know that, that what they would have done next, according to Jewish custom, is they would have invited the people who were gathered around to 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 slip away to give them some privacy and they would have taken the body of their brother and they would have tenderly washed it this was the role that families played when a loved one died and it would have been a time of of, of tremendous pathos as they carefully cared for the body of their brother and then they wrapped that body in strips of linen interspersed with spices to fight off the, uh, the, frankly, the smell of the, uh, the decay that would already be developing in the heat of the Middle Eastern day and climate and they knew they only had a little bit of time before the natural process took over. And so, in a few hours, someone would come by, probably some men from the neighborhood. They would pick up Lazarus's body, now wrapped up. It would no doubt give vent to another wave of tremendous sobbing in the life of these two women as they watched the men carrying their brother out of the house for the very last time. And then they would become part of the somber parade that would pursue the men as they walked down the street to the one place these women did not really want to go. And they would have stood there and stopped outside and they would have seen as the men carried Lazarus down some steps into his final resting place to this place of entombment where they would never see him again. Some years ago I was in Israel and I went to the village of Bethany where all of this happened. And I remember our guide taking our little party down the street and to the exact location where Lazarus was entombed. They know it was the exact location because what happened there in that particular place like only one other grave that i'm aware of in all of human history was so significant and profound and memorable that the people in that village marked its location and never forgot where it was and passed the story on from generation to generation and to our present time and i remember going down the stairs because the tomb is now open And the stairs have gotten quite a bit longer because over the years, dirt and ruins and other things pile up through the centuries. And I went down the stairs and all the way in to this little grotto that dates back to first century times. And I remember how I went from the heat of the day to the cool of that place, and then how as I got even further in, the air became quite stale. And I began to feel incredibly claustrophobic in the shadowy place because you could just feel the weight of the earth above you closing in. And I remember this chill going up and down my spine as I thought to myself. I could imagine the the rock being rolled across the entrance and the lights going out. And I thought, I never want to be entombed like this. I would never want to be. Stuck in a place like this, the tomb of Lazarus is a is a literal place. It's not a fairy tale we're talking about here. This is a an actual place, and what happened in that place is history. It's it, it's it's an event that actually makes history in the most dramatic sense possible. It's not just a metaphor for the spiritual life, though we're going to talk about the layered meanings in this story all throughout this series. As I said in my message last week, Jesus raised Lazarus from the grave as an act of love. As an act of love for one particular family. He acted in a dramatic way, never again for any other family that we know of. He did this to express the heart of God for this family. But Jesus raised Lazarus also as a pointer to an even larger reality, his own coming death and resurrection, he too would be entombed for days and then rise again. And even that act itself, his own rising, was a pointer to yet another event still, the day when you and I are raised to new life and this world is restored to the glory for which it was made. Ultimately, the resurrection power of Jesus demonstrates God's capacity to raise us up from sin and death and all that drags us down. I am the resurrection and the life, Jesus would go on to say in this very story. He would tell Martha and Mary, don't worry, I am the resurrection and I am the life and the one who believes in me will live even though they die. Even though death comes, they'll live again, I promise you. If they believe in me. And that phrase, believe in, is a very important one to us. Because in the Greek, actually, it's the two words are pistuo ice. Pistuo meaning to believe and ice E-I-S, meaning into. It doesn't say believe in me. It says actually, literally, believe into me. Put your life into me. Drop your life right into me as if you're in the middle of the Bible and let me hold you. Let me carry you. Let me do what only I can do with you. The one who believes into me will live, even though they die. This is the major emphasis of the story of Lazarus. This is the big takeaway. There is a God greater than sin and death and he invites you to put your life into his. It's the great theme of the gospel message. It's the story we take out into the world. But there are layers to this and implications to this that I think are worth pondering. Sometimes if you're really going to absorb just how good the good news is, you just cannot rush to that conclusion. If you're going to really get the significance of the work that God is doing, you have to start earlier in the story. You can't just rush on. You can't just go skipping on into the sunshine of Easter morning for reasons I described today. Sometimes you just have to sit at the tomb. The place of transformation is the tomb. In recent weeks, I've talked with so many different people who found themselves in a tomb of sorts. Not a literal place of dirt and rock, but a closed-in, hopeless place of endings of one kind or another. A place they didn't want to be. I talked this week to someone who got the news that after tremendous results in the therapy, the cancer was now back. It had come roaring back with a vengeance. I talked to someone who, who had been doing a great job in their workplace, they were beloved, they were making a difference, everybody would like to keep them, but the, there, there wasn't in the long-term financial model the money to keep them, they had to go, and they would no longer have that community of friendships and that place of significance to work in. I talked to someone who, for whom the house that had been such a wonderful home now seemed like such a dark and hollow place because not only had the kids gone, the spouse was not coming back ever. I talk to people whose business investments into which they poured so much of themselves counted on for future security had failed. I talk to people all the time who are in a position where the relationship they have with some parent or with a child or with one of their siblings is, is stone cold dead, really. Uh, I've talked to people who find themselves in a health situation where they just have to go leave their home and go into this facility or community. It's not the same. And their whole world seems to be closing down now. The tomb seems to be gathering around them now. And it's so hard, because there was once so much laughter, there was so much light and and hope and joy and normalcy, and now there's only this gathering darkness, this depleting air supply, this deadly kind of silence that seems to be coming around them. This is the life of the tomb. And at any given time, some of us are there, Some of you right now are there. You're in one of these tomb times in your life. All of us are actually heading towards a literal tomb, of course. And it's almost always hard to talk about this. I mean, we make mention of it, but it's hard to really describe what we feel like in these particular moments of our lives. When we converse with people who are going through a time of great trial and suffering, I've discovered this so often, They'll touch for a moment on what it is that they're living with and what it is they're feeling, but it's not unusual of them for them to then turn around and say, "You know, but I'm fine. I'm fine. Really? No? Yeah, I'm fine." Or how about you? Several of these conversations I had this week, where I'm just starting to go into what these people are dealing with, and they say, "Yeah, no, yeah, enough about that. How about how's it going with the church? How about with you?" And I'm thinking oh my gosh, what you're working with and dealing with is so much more important and difficult than what I'm dealing with at this particular moment. Why is it so hard to talk about the tomb? Why is it so hard to sit there? I think part of it is because it's uncomfortable and discouraging to look too closely at circumstances that feel so hopeless. You know, how depressing, it's almost like masochism to be spending too much time thinking about all oh, the stuff that is not working, that's, that's dying in a sense. Another part of us, I think, just feels that we shouldn't go back or dwell, delve in too deeply there is because it can feel a little selfish to do it. It, it feels actually selfish to think about our own sufferings because we know other people are suffer too. I have a good friend named Emily, I was there, in the hospital room when her fifth child, Evan, was born. I was there baptizing Evan in the church. I was there burying Evan a few months later as he drowned in his grandparents' jacuzzi. And Emily goes to Evan's grave several times a year, more than several times, and she brings a picnic lunch with her. And she sits down by his graveside, and she tells me, I go there to remember. And I said, tell me me more about that, Emily. And she says, I go there to not just remember Evan, I go there to remember I'm not alone. And she describes how she'll sit there eating her lunch and she'll look around the graveyard, and at various places all around the graveyard, she'll see others, others coming to remember and to grieve to sit at their own version of a tomb of sorts. Emily calls her little activity, tailgating at the tomb. And she says, it helps. It helps. For some of us, I suppose, part of why we don't really want to talk so much about these tombs in our lives is because they sometimes feel like failures. We think to ourselves, you know, if I had done something differently, I wouldn't have wound up in quite this place. You know what Mary and Martha were thinking that, right? They, they, you cannot imagine they weren't second-guessing. Why didn't we call for Jesus earlier? Why didn't we notice that, that Lazarus was, was doing so poorly? How come we didn't pick up the signs? My gosh, we're at the dinner table with him all the time. Why couldn't we have done something to keep this from happening? And we feel that about our own lives sometimes. We, we feel like we played a part in the mess or in the loss. There, there might have been something we could have done. Maybe we should have lived with more faith. Maybe we should have seen the problem brewing. I didn't, though. I didn't. Oh, I can't go back. So I prefer not to think about it. Our failures are tombs of sorts from our past. Maybe the most disturbing reality of all is our sense that, that these tombs are maybe there because actually Jesus did not care enough to stop it from happening. You know Mary and Martha, they were thinking, only human nature, I guess we overestimated our relationship with Jesus. Or he would have come and had done something about this. And many people, even very faithful people, in times of hardship and suffering, they wonder. Maybe God doesn't care that much. Or maybe he doesn't care that much about me. Or maybe he's not there at all. The Gospel writer John tells us that by the time he finally arrived in Bethany, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days, four days, he's died, he's been washed, he's been wrapped, he's been buried, he's dead, he's dead, he's dead, he's dead, and the weight of it is settled fully upon those women. They are feeling the weight of the tomb text goes on and says, when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him. You think she had a bouquet in her hand? No way. No way. This was not going to be a pretty reunion. Martha's first words are these. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And then she restrains herself. This is, after all, Jesus she's talking to. And she doesn't want to offend him and says, but I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. And Jesus assures her, your brother will rise again. There follows from here a further exchange and an eventual reunion between Jesus and Mary too. And this is important because we're told earlier that when Martha went out to see Jesus, I quote, Mary had stayed home. Now, if you've been watching this show and you have followed the earlier episodes, you know how weird that fact is. Because under normal circumstances, who's going to be the first person at the feet of Jesus? Mary. Absolutely. Absolutely. Martha, she'd be over at the tomb making sure there was flowers there. Mary would be there to be in the presence of Jesus. So why isn't she in the presence of Jesus? Why didn't she rush first to be with him? Here's my guess. She was hurting even more. She was disappointed even more. She was in a, in a, in a paroxysm of grief and anger and hurt and disappointment that the one in whom she'd put every bit of her hopes and love had not cared enough, apparently to show up. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was, and the only reason she reaches that place is because Jesus notices she's not there. And he issues a summons to her. He wants a relationship with her, even in the midst of her anger and hurt, the way God wants a relationship with you and with me in the midst of ours. And so when Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, He was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. And the language there of being deeply moved is a familiar turn of phrase. It suggests, it's the word splenchizomai. It's a word that describes the gut-wrenching sense of compassion that rises up and goes out towards the need. It's that same word that the good Samaritan feels as he moves towards the person in the ditch. It's what Jesus feels when he looks out over Jerusalem, when he looks out from the cross, it's what he feels as he looks now upon this woman, this community weeping, and he asked, where have you laid him? Where have you laid Lazarus? And the next verse reads, come and see, Lord, they replied. I've read this story a dozen times uh, more over the course of my life. I never picked up this detail until this week. It was that phrase, come and see. That's a familiar phrase, isn't it? We hear that one a lot in the New Testament. Every other time that it uh, it appears, or at least almost every other time, it's being uttered as an invitation from some human being to some other person inviting them to come and behold the Lord, the the giver of life, the way to life, every other time. But in this one instance, this invitation is being issued to Jesus to come and behold the reality of death. All the other invitations... Come find life. This is humanity saying, please God, come see death. Come experience death as we feel it. And there follows from there the shortest verse in the whole Bible and one of the greatest, just two words, Jesus wept. I don't mean he teared up. I mean he sobbed. Racking sobs of grief. And that in itself is so amazing. I mean, think about this. He's God. He's the Lord of life. He's the resurrection and the life. He's all power. He's sunshine. He's dazzling brilliance and capacity. In five minutes, he's going to take Lazarus and raise him to glorious new life. He knows the future. He knows how well it ends for those who believe into him. But nonetheless, right now, right here, Jesus grieves the reality of death. He enters completely into it with human beings. He aches at how it marks and mars the life of those that he loves. And standing at that place of apparently closed, hopeless ending for which we use the shorthand tomb, Jesus weeps with us. I tell you all of this because I'm hoping you will remember it. And I want to remember it because I think there's some really important takeaways from this story for each of us, for people we know too. When you're imprisoned in some tomb, when you're standing at the grave of someone or of something that has died or that you've lost, takeaway number one, it's okay to yell at Jesus. I mean, apparently it is okay because uh, like his best friends did and it did not seem to faze him one bit. It is okay to pour out the depth of what it is that you're feeling about whatever's going on, your disappointment, your hurt, your confusion, your anger, whatever it is, you can say this to him. He can take it. Jesus is used to this Read the Old Testament and how many people there shook their fist, expressed their passionate concern, and their wondering and their doubts to God. So remember that, number one. Number two, remember also, He is with you in your pain. I can't speak for other versions of God, but this one, this God, if you know anything about Him, He shows how with us he is in our pain, the pain that sin and death afflicts upon us. And even though he plans to deliver us, ultimately he's at the tomb with you. He is. He's there with Emily. He's there with that litany of people I shared about. So talk honestly to God or to one of his earthly brothers and sisters and representatives here, talk with him about what you're dealing with right now. You find yourself with this world that's shrinking, closing in, you're feeling the weight of the earth around you, you feel like you're coming to a place of endless hopeless, closing down in some way. Talk up to, about this to God. Describe what it feels like to be in this particular tomb. Go into some detail about it. it, it, it you can wail about it if you like. It's not a lack of faith. It's called a real relationship. <laughs> this is what real relationship's about. I love the way that Stephen W. Smith puts it. And I quote him, a religion that does not embrace the tomb is only a feel-good religion, not an authentic relationship with God. It's only a feel-good religion. It really doesn't do much in reality. If we fail to address the soul-stirring questions that the tombs of our lives ask, writes Smith, if we pretend that the tombs don't really exist and we ignore the really difficult parts of life and faith, then we will settle for something far less than authentic transformation. Without acknowledging the pain of life, We will not know the abundance of life that Jesus came to bring. And then here's a really good part. I hope you listen to this. The tomb is where resurrection happens. In fact, the tomb is the only place where resurrection happens. If you want resurrection, real transformation... Expect to go to the tomb because that's where it begins. The places in our hearts where failure reigns, despair rules, are the places where transformation begins, not ends. We can have no life without first entering death. I tell you, said Jesus, unless a seed falls to the ground and dies, there cannot be a harvest. There cannot be. The path to new life is always through some form of death. Smith goes on to say, Transformation doesn't begin with us. It begins with God. The cold rigor mortis-filled body of Lazarus could do nothing but decay in that tomb apart from God's transforming work. And I see that in lots of contexts, and you probably do too. Uh, Marriages, hearts, whole worldviews tend to stiffen and harden and become very cold and lifeless without the work of God in them. Once motivating, dreams die and... and and faith becomes just a set of dead rituals unless the work of God is in the midst of them. Homes and workplaces become veritable embalming parlors where we just grow number and number and number to the people around us and actually in many cases drain the whole lifeblood from one another unless the work of God is there. Bringing about renewal, resurrection of sorts. And so it's... It's actually a very good thing when we wake up and realize, hey, I think I'm living in a tomb. I I, I think this place I'm in right now in my life, I think it's one of those tomb times of my life. I don't know how to get out of this darkness by myself. I think I'm in really serious trouble. God, help me. Because it's when we get self-aware enough to know that we're hurting and helpless to fix our own condition by ourselves that Jesus arrives. took Mary and Martha four days to get there. If it had taken them ten, he'd have showed up then. What will it take us to get to the place where we know that we need what only God can do? Because it's there that Jesus begins the next stage of redemption. I love the way God himself puts it in the words of the prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament. I will give you treasures hidden in the darkness I'm going to give you treasures, but guess where you're going to find them? In the darkness. Secret riches. I will do this so you may know that I am the Lord. It wasn't you, it was me. I am the Lord, the one who calls you by name. So if you find yourself in the darkness, listen. Listen, for Jesus is calling your name. Lazarus, come forth. Please pray with me. Lord, I pray that... You who know the stories of our life, who can see where we are right now, will meet us with yourself there. And if we're in a place of sunshine and light and laughter, we thank you for this, Lord, we do. And we just recognize the grace that it is. And if we're in a place of darkness and ending, and closing down. We thank you that you are there too. Open our hearts to you, Lord. Deepen the relationship we have with you. And give us, Lord, because we're weak and doubting, give us, Lord, the assurance, the feel of your touch, to know that you are here. For we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.